Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia. And I would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is titled New Perspectives in the Treatment of Advanced Skin Cancer, and that includes advanced basal cell and squamous cell cancers. Um, and um, this program is part one of a two-part series, Living with Advanced Skin Cancer. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between many other cancer organizations as well as skin cancer organizations, and I really want to thank them all for collaborating on today's program. And we have on the call today over 369 participants, and you come from all of the United States, so from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants today from Canada and United Kingdom. So uh, we also have some international participants as well. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and Novartis Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support and their uh, collaborative support of this program. Now, we have a wonderful speaker on our program today, and really the best of the best, uh, Dr. Michael Wong. Uh, Dr. Wong is Professor of Medicine, Advanced Basal Cell and Squamous Cell Medical Oncology, the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong is going to be presenting an overview of advanced skin cancers, including basal cell cancers and advanced squamous cell cancers. He's going to address standard of care, new treatment approaches, the emerging role of targeted therapy, clinical trial updates, how research contributes to treatment options, managing treatment side effects, discomfort and pain, tips to care for your skin during cancer treatments, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong, who's going to actually be presenting to you for the next probably 30 minutes. So it's my great pleasure to have him on the call today. Dr. Wong. Thank you, Dr. Misner. It's my uh, pleasure and privilege to be able to speak to everyone today about an area which has seen a lot of change in the, in the past several years, and specifically about basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma. These are the skin cancers that come from what we call keratinocytes, which are the actual cells that make up your skin, the stuff that your skin's made of. Um, and so I will follow the agenda that uh, Dr. Mesner put out and, and for the next 30 minutes just speak about those things which have uh, really been important uh, uh, to the, the, the diagnosis, treatment, and care of uh, people who are afflicted with these cancers. That said, basal cell and squamous cell are uh, the most prevalent ca skin cancers in this country. And these are the type of cancers that show up on skin. They are visible as uh, nodules and, and, and firm, hard growth, growth I'm sorry, and uh, are, are the kind of things that dermatologists uh, really uh, make a living, um, you know, sort of managing and t uh, taking care of. Uh, for the most part, uh, these are very well addressed uh, by dermatologists. They are usually superficial. They don't invade. They do not cause problems. Where a medical oncologist gets involved, and that's what I am, I'm a doctor that gives medicines uh, in order to treat these cancers, where we get involved is when these become advanced, when they become invasive, go deeper in. Luckily, that doesn't happen very often. And these are uh, the type of cancers in which uh, the standard of care in the past has been to manage them, uh, what we call with local te te um, techniques. Uh, in other words, by removing them when they're in a dermatologist's office, uh, by using cryotherapy, which is basically cold therapy, or sometimes in some places thermotherapy, uh, and by putting medicines on that will basically remove them from the skin. Uh, uh, sometimes the people even use topical, which are uh, which are creams applied to the surface, topical chemotherapies. And that takes care of the vast majority of these. How patients recognize these is that, and I tell all my patients, you know, to be vigilant about change. 
And so any lesion on the skin that really shows significant changes ought to be brought to the attention of uh, the, um, uh, the dermatologist. Um, and sometimes even areas of your body that, that, you, that other people point out are important. Uh, I have my own story where I gave a, uh, a speech at a conference one time and decided to go and, and exercise by working out in a pool. And as I walked by, um, you know, I noticed uh, so a lady looking at me, and I said, "Wow, this is you know, I still got this thing. You know, I'm, you know, svelte and and the whole thing." It turns out uh, this lady was a nurse at a melanoma clinic and pointed out a spot on my back which I could not see. So all this to say that uh, that these things come to people's attention, and in the era of everyone having a smartphone, I would just encourage folks to just take a picture of this, and especially a picture over time and show it to your dermatologist. Nobody knows your skin better than yourself. The only thing I would say is that because uh, how color is important is is to take these pictures under the same conditions, which is basically, I tell folks, the the sunlight is a constant, doesn't vary very much, so, you know, take it by a window or something so that you get natural light on the lesion because how they change uh, both in size, shape, and color is a difference. Now, I'm going to be addressing those lesions which have become problematic and are identified by dermatologists to, to be uh, particularly troublesome. Why? Because of either grown larger or have, or have impacted critical structures, like gone deeper down into the skin or even next to bone in areas where the, of, the, of the body where the skin is very thin, or have been shown to be clinically advanced. Uh, maybe you feel the nodule is bigger than it should be or is tethered to underlying structures. These immediately come to the care of a multidisciplinary team. The standard in the past has been to do surgery, and either uh, uh, conventional surgery with a surgeon or what we call Mohs surgeries, which is a special type of, of uh, technique, uh, surgical technique done by dermatologists. However, we've had very uh, sort of um, um, unsatisfactory answers for what happens when they become even more advanced than that, when they've uh, gone to other parts of the body or to regional lymph nodes or become invasive enough that simple surgery is not possible. In the case of basal cell and squamous cell carcinomas, one of the answers has been to to deliver uh, very specific and focal radiation to the areas which are problematic. That still is the paradigm of, of care. Uh, in, a, in a situation of squamous cell carcinoma, in the past, we've utilized uh, um, medicines, chemotherapies, in an attempt to um, get at these tumors, especially if they become metastatic. And by metastatic, we mean that they've escaped the skin and have gone to other parts of the body beyond the lymph nodes, which are next to the affected area. So uh, this is something I deal with as a medical oncologist, where the uh, cancer has uh, advanced itself to go to other organs such as lungs or liver, for instance. So we have tried to answer this uh, uh, need in the past with chemotherapies, with uh, medicines that attack molecules inside the, uh, uh, the squamous cells. And it hasn't really, it has been effective, but we, you know, we had always hoped for better. So today's talk really is to speak about some of the excitement that has happened in this area. I want to start with basal cell carcinoma because uh, the, the therapies for these are uh, distinct and different today. Again, basal cell, uh, just like squamous cell, was, uh, was treated with local excision, followed by medicines. But again, these, these medicines, you know, we'd always thought that we can do better. One of the uh, in, uh, incredibly exciting things that have happened with basal cell carcinoma is a understanding of the molecules and mutations that occur inside these cells to make them go from benign to malignant. In other words, we have discovered specific changes that drive these cells to be cancerous, the on-off switch, if you wish. And in this particular case, there is a molecular pathway uh, which is uh, named hedgehog, and I'll tell you why it's named hedgehog in a second, and there are medicines that are used to directly um, um, attack, uh, directly uh, uh, modulate or change this pathway in order to turn off the switch. So imagine the hedgehog pathway 
uh, just like a light switch being the on switch that turns that cell, that basal cell from being benign to malignant, the medicines actually attack the, uh, the switch itself to turn it off. It's a very important concept. Now, why do we call it hedgehog? Many of these molecular pathways were first uh, discovered in fruit flies. And by looking under a microscope, you could segregate fruit flies with certain mutations. And how do you recognize them in the fruit fly? The shape of the wing or the shape of the body. So there are molecular pathways uh, such as jagged, notch, smoothen, and they all have to do with the shape of the wing. And over decades of research, people have figured out that these mutations not only shape the wing of fruit flies, but also play a role in cancer. And hedgehog is one of them, uh, reminiscent of the spiky appearance of the hedgehog uh, uh, skin. So having said that, uh, and knowing that this molecule pathway is important, there are now pills that uh, we can give patients with advanced basal cell carcinoma in which uh, these uh, medicines go in and basically turn off that hedgehog pathway, which is making that cancer, uh, 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 so making that basal cell become cancerous. The results have, are in, and uh, the clinical trials have been done in this area, and these medicines, called hedgehog inhibitors, are now FDA-approved for, for use in advanced basal cell carcinoma. So that's an example of really the tremendous investment that this country has made in basic science. Uh, who would have thought fruit flies would translate to understanding how skin cancer works? But uh, this is how discovery works, and, and this is uh, the direct, we are the direct beneficiaries of all that basic science work. So today, the standard of care for advanced basal cell carcinoma is to use these hedgehog inhibitors in order to really uh, attack the cancer. And they've been uniformly successful and they've become standards of care. We're going to talk about side effects and things like that in a minute, but I want to move on and talk about squamous cell carcinomas and the great changes that have occurred in this area. It's we have become, uh, um, we've come to an understanding that some of these cancers, especially squamous cell carcinomas, can be attacked using uh, the patient's own immune system. Uh, and indeed, uh, there are now, uh, the data's in, there's now two uh, clinical trials that have been completed showing that using immune therapy uh, with medicines that target what we call the PD-1 pathway, so PD-1 stands for Program Death Re Receptor 1 Pathway, in the immune system results in your body's immune system waking up and, um, and really attacking these cancers. What it means, and the way it works is that um, uh, PD-1 is something that we are born with. We have it intrinsically w within ourselves. This is something everyone has in our body. It is a natural, built-in break to the immune system. It prevents our own immune system from running amok every time we you know, run into a, a speck of pollen that our body doesn't like or eat some bad sushi or you're in Houston, have a bad ta taco or something, it sort of makes it so that your immune system does its job and then turns off. It turns out that cancers such as squamous cell carcinoma use the same pathway to put a cloak of invisibility over it so that the immune system cannot recognize it. It uses your body's own uh, natural built-in break to prevent your body's immune system from recognizing and destroying the cancer. Again, this is all very exciting new stuff, and in fact, uh, the most recent Nobel Prizes given for medicine and physiology were given to the individuals who discovered the uh, checkpoint pathways. And as a shout-out to uh, what we do at MD Anderson, one of the Nobel Prize winners is Dr. James Ellison, who's here at MD Anderson and who discovered the CTLA-4 pathway, a different pathway than the PD-1. So these uh, pathways uh, are built into our immune system. And so by using medicines that are 
uh, anti-PD-1s that can go in and, and take the foot off the brake. It just basically unleashes your immune system to attack the cancer. And these have been extremely successful in advanced uh, squamous cell carcinoma. And now uh, there are now two FDA drugs, uh, approved drugs, which have come out recently in the past uh, um, 16 uh, months or so, and really have changed the standard of care in this cancer. And so these are the type of changes that, are, that have occurred in, uh, in these um, uh, in basal cell and in squamous cell carcinomas, which have really, in, in the past couple of years, changed how we've done this. Now, uh, both of these are called targeted therapies. The first in basal cell is because it's targeted to the hedgehog pathway, and the second in squamous cell carcinoma is, is targeted to your body's own immune system. It's a little bit different. So what I wanted to, to emphasize to everyone is that everything I've talked to you about right now uh, uh, even though it's FDA approved and in common and in general use right now, every single one of these drugs have at one time or another been part of a clinical trial, which really underlines how important clinical trials are to the advancement of new drugs in cancer. And so many of the clinical trials ongoing now are, are building upon what we've known b before. In the hedgehog pathway arena, there are uh, 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 clinical trials done to understand scheduled dosing better, to make it more tolerable, and to combine it with other therapies as well. Immune therapy that we've done in squamous cell carcinoma is also being studied in basal cell carcinoma. In squamous cell carcinoma, um, it's safe to say that we have doubled down on uh, using immunotherapy for this cancer. So we have really focused on uh, trying to make immune therapy better. We're focused on, on looking at combinations of immunotherapy. We're looking at uh, vaccines and things like that in squamous cell now that we recognize that it is immunologically responsive. So there's been an explosion of new trials all coming up and building on the backbone of the, what I've told you about already. I want to talk a bit about side effects as well, and they're different. Again, I'm going to segregate this into the discussion of basal cell and then squamous cell, only because basal cell is really um, uh, uh, deals really with uh, what happens when you're on these hedgehog inhibitors. Uh, these hedgehog inhibitors are pills that you take every day, uh, and one of the things I've noticed in my own patients is that although the, you don't get these sort of very uh, serious serious side effects that can really, uh, you know, uh, make us stop medicines, uh, with, you know, it, it can happen, but that's not that common. Um, I call it more like you know, um, you know the the, the the sand in the shoe as you try to walk a long ways. It's, these are niggling type of side effects that can be very problematic. Um, you know, I I tell folks that even though this is not chemotherapy, uh, hair loss can be something that can, that can occur. We call alopecia, and uh, I point to my own bald head and says, you know, you might end up looking like this. Uh, but also, uh, uh, there is weight loss associated with this, but only because uh, the sense of of, of taste is, it changes and and, and uh, decreases. Uh, people can get have these sort of low grade sort of uh, discomforts in the stomach. Yeah, you can get diarrhea and things like that. And joint pain, muscle aches and pains, and spasms are also very common. Yeah. So none of these things by themselves are are things that can make us stop, but you can imagine if you have a, a consolation or a bunch of these symptoms together, the life can be miserable. That's not everyone, and everyone has a, a little bit different uh, 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 expression of these side effects. So many of the studies we, that have uh, been ongoing have to do with dose and schedule, and and what I tend to do is make these very individualized to my patients. There are multiple suggestions about how to make it more tolerable, there are uh, schedules in which you uh, use medicines for a period of time, followed by what, we, what I call a, a drug vacation, where you do off medicines. And we can do this for the most part because basal cell carcinoma, uh, 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 for the most part, are tumors that are fairly slow growing. And so you're able to inhibit them, uh, push them down, make them smaller, make them go away, and then sort of have a period where you uh, are off drug for a period of time until you have to go back on again. So that's an example of a strategy 
that that will work. We also, of course, use medicines that deal with the nausea and the discomfort and so on and so forth that can happen. So that's an example of the side effects that can occur with the use of hedgehog inhibitors in basal cell carcinoma. Squamous cell carcinoma side effects are a little bit different because they tend to be all having to do with uh, immune therapy. Uh, it's safe to say that the, that the vast majority of side effects from using immune therapy have to do with your body's immune system now unleashed attacking yourself, the patient's body, uh, uh, in addition to the cancer. There is a reason why we were built with these uh, uh, PD-1 pathways in our bodies, that to, namely to sort of uh, put a damper on the immune system so it doesn't do that. But once you unleash it, it can actually do that. So it's it's perhaps more useful to say, instead of going through all the specific side effects, it's more specific to say that that any tissue or organ can be affected. Uh, and so a close collaborative relationship between the patient and the doctor is very important. Uh, I, in my own practice, a typical appointment to, to before you get your infusion, because all these immune therapies are intravenous, there are no pills for this, is that you come to my office, we do some blood work, uh, we check out uh, uh, parameters to help, us under, to help us understand whether there's inflammation inside internal organs. We have a face-to-face -face where we uh, basically uh, you know, get information from the patient to, to see what may be going on and what organ systems we have to pay more attention to. And then if all things check out, uh, off you go to infusion. So that's a typical appointment. And so uh, I tell folks there are some uh, organs in the body that are more have a higher propensity for inflammation than others. The inflammation occurs as a consequence of, of your body's immune system attacking itself. But I think the, the most useful piece of information is to really uh, have an ability to, to contact your healthcare team to go over anything that may be happening so that they can help work through uh, and diagnose whether this is a toxicity of uh, therapy or not. This actually brings me to the next uh, question, which is, um, uh, uh, you know, what are the key questions to ask our healthcare team as you go through therapy? I think that's important. Um, I think uh, asking uh, your team directly what they think, uh, what they anticipate the side effects might be is important. There's nothing worse than sitting at home and having something happen to you and kind of wondering, you know, what's going on, and to and to be prepared and have a, a plan of action. Everyone comes to uh, a doctor's practice in their own individual way, and everyone has or has a lifetime of things that have happened to them before that, it includes side effects, other issues, and things like and what, what other issues? I think I mean things like previous operations, uh, things like diabetes, high blood pressure, high lipids, so on and so forth. We all come to our doctors with our own little individual issues. And understanding how the current therapy interacts with that gives rise to what you might expect for that individual person. So asking your, the doctor directly, you know, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think, for me, the potential side effects might be? Once you have that identified, I think the next thing is, also, and I talk about this close collaboration, and this is especially true for the um, uh, immune toxicities that you can get with these PD-1 inhibitors used in squamous cell carcinoma. What's particularly important is, is because these are side effects that can occur uh, without a schedule. Uh, and why? Because uh, they interact with our body, and our body's immune system has its own unique um, um, attributes that these side effects can occur uh, at, at times which we don't expect. So having an ability to reach your healthcare provider, understanding what the best way to reach them are, and to be able to access them should you need, need to is important. That sort of lowers anxiety levels on everyone's front, but it's also better medical care. So, uh, so that close interaction with the doctor's office is very, very important. Um, and finally, uh, the thing I want to really sort of leave you with is that We've talked today uh, about uh, tremendous changes in squamous cell and basal cell carcinoma. But I want to also emphasize that uh, there are other uh, non-melanoma skin cancers, as we, as we call them, and, and one of them is Merkel cell carcinoma, which uh, also in its own right has had great tremendous changes. 
not a topic for today's uh, very specific uh, uh, telephone conference, but I just also want to put the word out there that uh, that there's a really tremendous change in uh, how we treat skin cancers today uh, compared to merely a few years ago. And so um, seeking out information, being uh, uh, going to, to physicians that have an expertise in these areas is sometimes very important. So the final thing I want to leave you with is a sense of, of uh, hope and opportunity in these cancers. Uh, there have been really uh, great changes in a short period of time. There are a host of clinical trials which have come out now, really building upon the backbone of uh, our early successes. There are new ideas coming out because now we have a better understanding of the molecules and the uh, DNA changes and the protein changes that can occur in these cancers. And with that, uh, target uh, drugs that, uh, sorry, uh, use drugs that target these uh, these changes specifically. So those are some of the exciting things coming out. We're getting better and better at this, and uh, uh, I tell all my patients, uh, and I want to tell you here, that this is a situation of great hope and opportunity. So, Dr. Messer, I'm going to stop here and and uh, and uh, let the program roll forward. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was really outstanding presentation, really um, covering the entire gamut. And so we um, we really thank you. I want to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions from our participants. Um, so, uh, so please prepare your questions, um, and uh, and we will be we look forward to taking your questions during the Q and A. Um, very much so. Um, so I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national organization, nonprofit. All of our services are free that you can access from Cancer Care. And um, we offer a host of services from practical and financial assistance. We do have a copay foundation as well. And we also offer a host of oncology social work services, um, a lot of counseling services, um, which means a really a chance to talk with one of our trained oncology social workers about your concerns or issues that you may be confronting. Um, you can um, speak to them individually, either on the telephone or online. We also run about 138 online support groups on many different types of cancers and, of course, on um, on skin cancers as well. We have them for caregivers, for people of all ages as well, programs for all people of all ages as well. And um, we also offer um, a host of um, programs on the telephone as well. You can do telephone support group. We have those as well. Many people find that to be very useful. And um, so that can be very helpful to everybody as well. Um, and then we also... Um, we also do um, the telephone support groups would be very helpful. They are in real time as opposed to the online support groups, which are actually um, you can post any time of the day or night. So those can be you can those can be on any time you wish. Um, so um, and um, we, in addition, also offer. Um, a uh, these educational programs, lots of them. We actually have a, quite a few of them coming up in the next few months, so actually do stay tuned for them. And actually at the end of the program, you will receive an evaluation form, and the evaluation form will uh, give you all of the upcoming programs, any resources that Dr. Wong or I should mention during the program. Um, so with that being said, we do now have time for questions. So I'm going to ask um, Sonia to, tell, to explain to everybody how to queue up for questions, and why don't we take as many questions as we can. Sonia? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Thank you so much, Carolyn. As usual, excellent seminars. I have two questions. Since I'm a 13-year breast cancer survivor and my immune system has been suppressed, but it's finished, I'm, I haven't had any recurrence. But my question is for the doctor on recurrence of a person who had squamous. My parents had squamous cell carcinoma on the face, I liked, and my husband had basal cell carcinoma on the nose. He had treatment, and it's gone. And what is uh, the rate of reoccurrence for basal cell and squamous cell, and if a person has an immune system that's suppressed or it's you know it's gone, uh, the cancer can um, you be susceptible to both these cancers? And what about 
the genetics in the family of basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Stephanie. Great questions. Dr. Wong, could you address them in a general way to help everybody to better understand um, the questions? Sure. Sure. These are great questions. Uh, first of all, to, to answer the last question first, which is the question of genetics, yes, there are genetic syndromes associated with a higher prevalence of both basal cell and squamous cell carcinomas. They actually have familial type of, of uh, syndromes that, to which these cancers can occur in, in, in higher prevalence. Um, for the most part, they are cancers which uh, track through the family and, uh, more importantly, occur at a very early age. And for us, early age is sometimes in in their 20s and sometimes their teens. And that said, these are also exceedingly uncommon. It would not be unusual for an oncologist to practice an entire lifetime and not see one of these syndromes in their practice. And if you do happen to have them, and most individuals who have them know who they are, uh, most of them, uh, I mean, my suggestion is to, to, to be treated at a center of excellence that specializes in these syndromes. Why? Because they're rare. And so expertise tends to be concentrated in these, uh, in these centers. Now, there is another thing as well, which is people ask me, are these things genetic? And the answer is yes, because as well. Uh, and why? Because uh, uh, my children inherit from their parents the, the, the hair color, the skin makeup, the eye color um, of their parents. And uh, uh, they tend to vacation together, to hang out together, to do things together. And having said that, both basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma are uh, uh, the highest risk factor to this is uh, sun exposure. Um, and this can be sun exposure from from uh, having to work outside. I, I, you know, I, I, I live and work in Texas, so um, there's a reason why cowboys wear cowboy hats, right? I mean, because it provides broad sun protection. But you can imagine being outside and having to work outside as as part of your uh, profession, that this is an issue. Um, uh, that includes also recreational things, uh, folks that are uh, that have uh, uh, outdoor sports or even things like fishing, which is outdoor recreation, have to be particularly careful. Um, we also recognize that, uh, that uh, exposure to UV radiation uh, voluntarily through things like sun tanning beds is also a risk factor. And suffice it to say, in this country, there is legislation being passed by multiple states restricting these uh, to, uh, 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 to uh, adults because minors used to be able to get access to these and to, uh, and to really point out as a, a public health uh, uh, awareness that these things can be problematic and also give rise to it. So what about recurrence? Um, what happens is that many of my patients come to me and they've, they've had uh, uh, years before of sun exposure. And I remind folks that in my generation, um, you know, um, copper tone was advertised as helping you put the tan on, uh, not, take the tan, not prevent tan. And I certainly grew up in a day when you know, uh, uh, sun tanning outside uh, was the thing to do, and I myself uh, grew up in that generation and understand it very well. But, uh, but I also remind folks, this is a new era. We know more things. We know better things to do than to do that. And so uh, when I see a patient come in with uh, any of these skin cancers, any of the skin cancers, melanoma, basal cell, squamous cell, Merkel cell, I tell them that from this point on, uh, you have to be sun smart to understand that your skin has already been affected by what happened before. Because of that, the risk of, of a second cancer coming up is, is substantial enough that I, I tell them that you have to hook up with a, uh, uh, you know, a local dermatologist, uh, someone that you can visit on a regular basis, and they can monitor your skin. Because remember what I said in my program, which was you know, things that change in your body are important. So having someone that you go to on a regular basis that you uh, that can that can understand how your skin is now, and that can make relative uh, judgment about what happens uh, about things that happen to your skin and whether or not to to uh, treat it uh, conservatively or more aggressively, having someone like that on your healthcare team is important. 
having said that as well, uh, what I mean by sun smart is not that you stay inside your home or a cave. That's that's ridiculous. We know that being outside is enjoyable, and that's and that being out in the sun is actually pleasurable. We know that for a fact. However, we uh, we also know that uh, that you can uh, have a time, you can pick the time and location of your exposure. So I tell folks, do you really have to wash your car at 12 noon with your shirt off? Well, you know, this is not, or can it be done at other times of the day in which the sun isn't as high in the sky? Uh, do we really need to have football practice at, at uh, in the midday, or can we do it in the in the early morning or later in the evening, for instance? Things like that, and uh, there are now if you uh, 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 clothing choices that we have that we didn't have before. We can learn a lesson from uh, societies and cultures that live out in desert climes, and for them, it's all clothing based as a protective layer. Uh, the concept of using, uh, you know, uh, stuff on your skin, sun, uh, you know, sunblock in your skin is. Is uh, is uh, if you ask them, many of them will tell it's laughable because they know that that only buys you a little bit of time, in if you live in a desert before you have a problem. So clothing is uh, is important. So wide brim hats, sunglasses. Um, um, I personally wear technical clothing that has long sleeves all the way down, right? These high weave things that allow us to breathe, and and so on and so forth. Now having said that. You know, even I myself got sunburnt one time when I went fishing with my friends, not, and I got sunburnt between the, the tip of my fingers and uh, the edge of the long sleeve that came down to my wrist. Uh, all the uh, handling of fish and water washed off all the protecting uh, sunblock I had, so I came to work in my skin cancer clinic with a sunburn. Can you just imagine that one? So even the best of us uh, uh, don't always have it 100%, but it's you don't. But that's not the point. The point is to be, in, in general, sun smart. So that's a long answer to, to that. But it's important also to get the information out that once you have one, it's important to realize that you, you, you have to be vigilant against all those other things uh, and second ones coming up. And once you have one, it's a signal from your skin that it's, uh, uh, that it's uh, at a point where uh, skin cancers have begun to show up. And that's that tells you to be sun smart and to be vigilant from that point in time. Well, that's excellent. And what a great question, Stephanie and Dr. Um, Dr. Wong. What a great answer. It's fantastic. Um, so um, another question we have from one of our participants is, um, how do I avoid scarring when I get treatment? Are there options other than surgery for treatment that minimize the chance of scarring? Could you comment on that in a general way, Dr. Wong? Right, that's uh, that's a question I I um, uh, that's very individualized, and the reason is because it depends on the surgery, and it depends on what's involved and the extent of surgery, uh, right? The depth of the surgical incision that's necessary. Uh, these uh, oftentimes before surgery is carried out, most surgeons will quote unquote map out what they need to do. That includes a biopsy of the primary tumor. You get a sense of its behavior at the edges, you can see that. So, we, so, what we, so that's important to get a true sort of through-and-through through biopsy. And knowing that, uh, they also sometimes may do ultrasound, MRIs, or even CT scans to try to understand what's involved. Is it, un, is it up against the fascia, which is a tough connective tissue layer in the skin? Is it just in the fat? Is it restricted just to skin? Is it impacted bone? All those questions... And uh, it's important in determining the extent of the incision and, by definition, the uh, the, the scarring. In really difficult situations, uh, a plastic surgeon may be involved to do a skin graft over the site. As far as uh, scarring is concerned, that's, uh, there is also an individual component. Many surgeons, uh, and I defer this question, by the way, and I would defer this question to uh, to something that a patient should ask the surgeon, but they will look at your skin and make a determination based on how you've healed up before, what your skin lesions are right now, and how we may uh, and how it may be impacted by the surgery in question. So, uh, so in a, in in a many ways, it, it depends on the specific question, uh, the the answer to the specific question you have with the surgeon. 
Excellent. Thank you. Um, such important questions that come up often, I know. Um, so I have another question from one of our participants. Um, so what are my options for reconstructive surgery on my face after I get surgery to get my squamous cell cancer removed? I feel I will be very self-conscious. That's also a very important question. So when we have a, 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 an excision, which, a, a cancer removal, which is in a difficult area, and that includes you know, places close to the eye, close to the critical structures, the lips, the face, that's a in in a place like MD Anderson. That's a multidisciplinary approach. We bring in uh, even the medicine doctors like myself, plastic surgeons, uh, rehab specialists, uh, head neck surgeon, and sometimes even a surgical oncologist who operate on different parts of that problem, right? And uh, and to try to achieve the best uh, uh, cosmetic outcome. Um, uh, that's the best way to answer that question because that's so individualized. And in the past, we have not, uh, uh, as a medical oncologist, we have not played a huge role, but because of uh, the efficacy of some of our uh, medicines now, sometimes we may deliver medicines before surgery in an attempt to shrink the tumor down a bit to allow for a better excision. So that's a new concept that's moving to the forefront. Uh, but my I think the best answer to that is that that's a very individualized um, uh, situation, unique to every single patient, and requires a, a team approach to it. And, and, uh, and at the end of the day, the important question that the, uh, the, the patient has to ask the doctor is, you know, what do, they, what do the physicians anticipate the outcome to be, and what are my chances of making sure that the cancer is removed completely once the surgery is done? Um, I think that's the best approach uh, uh, to, this, uh, to this question at this point. Excellent. Thank you. These are really questions, of course, to take back to the treating healthcare team, but very important questions, clearly. Um, so I have a question, um, again, from one of our online participants. Um, how do I move on? I worry that the cancer may come back. I check my skin constantly, visit my doctor every few months, and slather on sunblock all the time. I don't even want to go outside um, much anymore. My friends say I'm being silly. What else can I do? Oh, that's kind I of think a general question, more of a yeah. Uh, I think probably something you might hear from people. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think that person is really done everything they could have and the most important thing is an awareness of of the the problem right so vigilance is what i tell my patients uh it is uh, uh, unpredictable as to the pace of the disease and how it may or may not come back right and uh this is a, a situation where dermatologists can offer a lot of guidance because especially one who's seen you over time if they see that your skin is actually in pretty good shape and this is a sporadic occurrence, then they can offer that advice. If they see that there's a lot of sun-damaged uh, areas in your skin, uh, then they can offer, also offer some advice that way as well, and that in, impacts the, the, the aggression, the, the sort of the closeness of the follow-up and how vigilant you have to be. I am not a fan of people sequestering away in dark Caves, I, I, because I think, you know, life is for living, and we have to, and we have to sort of find a way to minimize risk. And the things I talked about previously, you know, um, you know, having sun smartness, uh, um, you know, uh, protective clothing that offers shade, and so on and so forth. That's all part of uh, lifestyle changes that can help uh, minimize the risk of cancer coming back. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and, and these are such they're important questions, and the responses that you're giving to people are very helpful so people get on with the momentum of their lives. Um, so a question about food. What should I eat to prevent reoccurrence? Are there foods that with, with antioxidants that would help with changing my diet make a difference? What a great question. I have to tell you that this is uh, something which almost every single one of my patients asks me. And unfortunately, the simple answer is we don't know. But 
we are actually mounting clinical trials here at MD Anderson where uh, uh, individuals who have specific kinds of cancers are offered the opportunity to come to um, uh, to come to uh, to enter a a uh, food intervention study in which uh, we're trying to modify uh, specific uh, uh, risk factors in patients through a very specific diet. I mean, this is run by one of my colleagues, and in fact. Uh, uh, the trial is is, op- is going to open up soon once they figure out all the logistics. But in essence, we're like Weight Watchers. We ship you all the food. We watch carefully what you eat. You record down what you eat. Then we do measurements of specific things that happen in your body. That's a, what we call an intervention study. Not been done before. So the the so the simple answer would be don't know, uh, 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 don't think so. Uh, but the long answer is, don't know, don't think so, but we're going to go find out. Uh, it's hard for me to recommend anything now because we try to be scientific about things, and the problem we have is that we just don't have science behind it uh, in in a way that we can really make firm recommendations. I I will tell you what I tell my own family. Uh, you know, we are designed as omnivores. You know, we are the success of our species is that we are able to eat anything. Uh, and uh, proteins, carbs, uh, you know, vegetables. And uh, our our general health and immune system works best when we don't have restrictive diets, meaning that, well, I'll only eat this, I won't eat that, I'll only eat this. And what happens is that uh, carried to the extreme, I said the extreme, uh, it can result in deficiencies, and that's what I worry about. So... Um, um, it doesn't hurt that I come from a re- from a family of restaurateurs, but really, uh, and I, I always tell folks, an omnivorous diet probably is the one that fits us best. But this is just an opinion. Now, it's very important to say this is opinion, not based on science, right? Well, that's excellent. Thank you. Thank you. That's really excellent, um, Dr. Wong. Thank you. And we have another question. My doctor has recommended superficial radiation therapy for my squamous cell carcinoma. What side effects are involved? Is it a preferable? Is it preferable to surgery? And if you could address that in a general way. Cause it's a, right. So I mentioned this before as well that the standard of care in the past before these new drugs have come out was exactly to do local regional therapy, and it still is a standard of care. You wouldn't use any of the medicines I talked about for things that are just very very. Localize the skin. No need to give systemic, i.e., you know, therapies that go through your whole body and potentially give your whole body side effects if you only have it in one spot. That said, radiation is a tool to help consolidate local results. For instance, if you have an area that is uh, difficult to resect and we are worried about how clean the resection is, that, uh, that is, did we get all the cancer, is every single one of it out, then radiation can come in as a as a way to quote unquote sterilize the area, uh, and it's it's usually superficial and uh, and it's a dose adjusted for that. Um, uh, the side effects I have to tell you are best answered by your radiation oncologist. And why do I say that? Well, the side effects have to do about where exactly, and I'm really mean exactly that beam is applied. So the side effects, as you can imagine, would be different if I got radiated say, over my forearm for screaming cell carcinoma versus one that's radiated right under my eye in my face for screaming cell carcinoma. So those side effects are very specific to where they uh, apply the radiation. So that's why it's an important question. That's one of the important questions that you have to ask your radiation oncologist, right? And, uh, uh, but, but that said, the use of radiation is part of the, the tool set to handle uh, superficial squamous cell carcinomas. Thank you. And um, this will be our last question. Is basal cell carcinoma a precursor to melanoma? I've had a lot of sun exposure as a teenager and worried that I might have a high risk of advanced skin cancer. Right. So, uh, so yes and no. I'm starting to sound like someone who can't give right, straight answers here. But um, basal cell carcinoma... Uh, the risk factor for that is sun exposure. So it really marks sometimes or identifies those individuals who have had a fair degree of sun exposure. 
And uh, sun exposure is also a risk factor for melanoma. So yes, people who have uh, basal cell carcinomas are at higher risk of developing other skin cancers, squames, and melanoma because they're sun-related. However, uh, from the scientific point of view, basal cell carcinomas do not directly become melanomas. They are not part of the same lineage, right? So they are a completely different part of the skin. So they themselves do not directly tie into melanoma in that sense of where they don't become melanoma, they don't promote melanoma, so on and so forth. But they are in a fertile field uh, which uh, has seen some sun exposure, and because of that, the other cancers are statistically more prevalent. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Wong. That was just an outstanding, a phenomenal presentation. And you can't hear us all applauding, but we are. And I also want to thank all of our wonderful participants on the call today, um, and we hope you've learned a lot. Um, and I know there are still questions in queue, so I just want to actually go over with you how to get your questions answered um, if you still have questions. So we do not in any way want to sidestep your healthcare team, and so indeed the first people to go to, of course, are your healthcare team. They, of course, know the most about you, and indeed whatever you've learned today, any question you ask, please bring it back to your treating healthcare team. And hopefully you'll ask more informed questions when you speak to them. In addition, we do often recommend, of course, all of the different, there's a number of different skin cancer organizations that are that we've partnered with. Um, we will also, when you get your evaluation, they'll be listed again for you. And we do also recommend the National Cancer Institute. They have a toll-free number, but they also have a website, and you can actually post questions on the website. There's a live chat feature where you can talk back and forth um, online with one of their um, information specialists. Most importantly, as we conclude our program today, I would not want any of you to feel alone in coping with, uh, with cancer, with skin cancers, that you're now part of a community of support. And also, um, we do have a part two to this, and it's going to be on Friday, May 24th, Emerging Treatments for Metastatic Melanoma. And so we um, look forward to your being on that program as well. Again, I thank you all for your participation and wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may all disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.